And if anyone else wants to transfer membership, all you have to do is let us know, and we will make that happen. Because we are a church um, company, it's, it's the, our status. We started as a church group with our eight people back in 2014, and um, we became a church company in 2018 because of our numbers grew a bit. And uh, the next step is actually for us to organize as an official church. And at that point, we'll have an official clerk, and our membership will be kept in our local church. But at the moment, it's kept at the conference office, and they move it for us. And so we just tell them, hey, we want this member moved from this church to this church, and they, they vote it in, and they do that. But eventually, when we become an official church, we'll be the ones to vote, and we'll get to you know, raise our hand and say, yes, we want Sean, we want Michelle, etc. So 30 years ago today... The remains of an unidentified Australian soldier were transported from a cemetery in France and flown on a special Qantas airplane marked for the occasion called the Spirit of Remembrance and then taken to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. For 75 years, he had remained in the cemetery in France, simply marked with a grave that said, Tomb of an unknown Australian soldier fought in the War of 1914-1918, to known unto God. And on November 11, 1993, he was reinterred here in Australia with a broadcast ceremony, and the Prime Minister at the time, Minister Paul Keating, gave the eulogy where he said, he is all of them, referring to the 100,000 Australian lives lost in wars since the 1900s, and he is one of us. 93-year-old veteran Bob Combe sprinkled soil from the battlefield in France over the Tasmanian Blackwood coffin, saying, you're home now, mate. And at the head of the tomb, if I can get the slides, thanks, Andrew. At the head of this tomb, if you ever go to Canberra, you can visit the war memorial and see the tomb of the unknown soldier. The words inscribed there says, known unto God. And this phrase was actually um, selected by the British poet Rudyard Kipling. Because you see, Kipling lost his son in the First World War. And unfortunately, no one could find his remains, um, and no one knew how he died. And the grief of the loss of his son, as well as the grief of not knowing what happened to him and where his body was, led Kipling to work for the Commonwealth um, War Graves Commission, where he was then uh, responsible, along with the others, in helping bury the dead, helping identify them, helping um, giving them ceremonies and, and memorials and, um, and markers. And whenever they couldn't be identified, Roger Kipling came up with that phrase, unknown soldier of the war, and then First World War One, of course, and then later on World War Two, known unto God. Unknown lives with unknown deaths, but known unto God. That phrase is a powerful phrase for believers. Because if we are known unto God, then we are remembered by God. So that even if no one else in the world cares, God cares. And even if no one else in the world knows what's happening to you or what happened to you, God knows. And that phrase also lets Everyone who sees that grave know they're known unto God and they will be resurrected. Paul, who was a first century Christian convert, 
traveled throughout the Roman Empire, sharing the good news that Jesus not only lived for us, died for us, but then was resurrected. And that we too would be able to have eternal life, anyone who believed in him. And if you look at this map of the Roman Empire in that time period, you see that Paul was very busy traveling from place to place, sharing the good news. And everywhere he went and everywhere where people believed in Jesus, he established house churches. And he traveled, you can see North Africa, well, other disciples went on to North Africa. He stayed mainly in the Western Europe as well as the eastern part of the, what we would call the Middle East today. And in these various churches, as she shared about Jesus, they had to learn a whole new way of thinking, right? These, these, the, the people who lived in the Roman Empire, they were a multicultural, diverse group. Um, they were, yes, living in the Greco-Roman world, but they came from all kinds of backgrounds, right? You can imagine. You've got those living in Italy, those living in Greece, those living in, in uh, parts of what is now Turkey, You've got all kinds of languages and peoples and tribes and belief systems. And so a- after he would spend some time with them, teaching them about Jesus, he would move on to other places, but he would write letters to continue to instruct these new believers. And one of the things that he talked a lot about was the hope of the resurrection. So he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he wrote in, uh, I'm going to be going through a lot of slides, just so you know, Andrew and Kay, so um, thanks for keeping up. First Thessalonians chapter 4, he wrote this letter to them. He said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this concept of the resurrection was such a strange thing for the Greco-Roman audience of his time. Still strange for us today, probably. And similar, well, I shouldn't say similar, but um, there were many diverse opinions about what happened after you died, then as well as now. Some of the main beliefs of the time was, one, you die, that's it, no afterlife, you cease to exist. And most people would believe that today. So that was one belief of the Greco-Roman world. Another belief was that you died and your soul went on to a shadowy existence in the underworld of Hades. So, whether you were good or bad, you all went on the underworld of Hades, which was not a pleasant place, and it was just kind of this dark, you've seen those movies, you know, boats of people, you know, and there's no coming back. It's, it's uh, not a very, um, it's not a real life, but it's kind of like this shadowy existence. So that was what most Greco-Romans believed based on their religious system. They also believed that a lucky few, for example, if you were a Roman emperor, would become deified and you would become like the gods and you would then go to the heavens. But that was only for if the really powerful, really lucky, really wealthy, prominent individuals. You can see how this Greco-Roman view of Hades and, and then of becoming like gods, crept into the Christian belief system later on and became heaven and hell. 
But that, I say, I say crept in because that's actually not what the early Christians believed. These is, this is what the Greco-Roman uh, individuals believed. But the Christians believed, as the Jews did, in a creator God who created the heavens and the earth, who created mankind from the dust of the ground, breathed into, the, uh, into Adam and Eve the breath of life, and then mankind became a living soul. The Greco-Roman world believed in a dualism, meaning that the soul could be separated from the body, and that after the body was dead, that the soul went on to the afterlife of Hades. But the Jewish and the Christian uh, followers believed that when God created, what happened to my microphone? (laughs) When God created uh, mankind, that the living soul can only exist in a body, a living body. And that when you die, you cease to exist in terms of consciousness, and God calls it a sleep. So throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, whenever uh, you hear uh, you know, mention of death, you will hear the words, and David lived whatever many years, and then he fell asleep. Or you know, Abraham lived however many years, and then he fell asleep. Right. And so throughout the Bible, you hear that phrase of sleep being used for followers of God because for them, death is like a sleep where they have no more consciousness, and they are waiting for the resurrection where their physical body is is uh, a physical body is a new body is given to them, and their their consciousness is res- is restored, and that's when they get to live in eternity. Now, as you can imagine, this concept that a soul cannot be separated from the body, and that you, there is no immortality of the soul, but that the soul is conditional upon. Uh, not only having a body, but being followers of God, was a concept that the Greco-Roman world really struggled with, right? They couldn't shake this lifelong belief that there is a soul separate from the body. And we know a lot of people today also believe that, so we can understand how it was difficult for them to grapple with this new concept that um, a monotheistic religion, which is Jewish and Christian uh, theology, was teaching, which is that no, it's, on, it's when God resurrects you that you get to then have eternal life. And so in the new churches throughout the Roman Empire that uh, Paul and the other disciples were establishing, there was a lot of confusion, and there was a lot of uh, dialogue and, um, I guess, deceptions about what happens after you die. So in order to clarify for them, Paul wrote this, and this he wrote to the church in Corinth, which is modern-day Greece, he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to be going through several slides here. Chapter 15, verses 12 and onwards. He says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most most to be pitied. Verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? Paul is saying, hey, if, if there's no resurrection, what is the point of being a Christian? Right? Especially for him, being a Christian was awful. What I mean by that is, before Paul became a Christian, 
He had a great life. He had a very promising career as a young lawyer. He was about to become a social elite. He was going to be a prominent leader in society. He was probably going to get married and have a pros, you know, a prosperous family. Right? He was going to get everything that, in his time, was the golden life. And let's be honest: everything that today we still consider to be a good life. But after Paul became a Christian, listen to the. The awful things that this poor guy endured. Okay, it's almost comical just how much he went through. It's not funny at all, but it's just listen to this list. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty-four to twenty-eight. Paul says, five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. So thirty-nine times he was whipped. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Do you feel stressed yet? Right. I mean, when I read this, I'm like, oh man, my life is so good, right? <laughs> my life is so good. Here's Paul and all that he endured. Who would want this kind of life? Nobody. And yet, Paul and many Christians in his time willingly chose to believe in Jesus and to share his story. Why? Right? Why? We go back to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses nineteen. So remember, we've already looked at how Paul says, "Hey, if if we have no hope for the resurrection, what's the point of being a Christian? We might as well join the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, like everybody else. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die." Right? He says that is the life we should live if there is no、uh, resurrection. But Paul goes on: If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in all, for isn't for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Am I hearing my own voice echoed somewhere? I feel like. Oh, okay. All right. I don't know what that is. All right. So, for Paul. The reason why he was willing to go through everything that he endured was because he had no doubt that Jesus was alive, and the reason why he had this conviction was that he saw a vision of Jesus when he was on the road to persecute the Christians. Jesus appeared to him and said, "Hey, here I am. I am very much alive. I am very much everything the Christians have said that I am, and I'm going to make you a leader." For me, and Saul is so overwhelmed by he what he sees, he actually becomes blinded temporarily, and he has to spend days and months and years unlearning everything that he had believed. And so he had had that time to be convicted without a shadow of a doubt. And so he's able to say, "I can go through all this. I can go through suffering, and I will do it again because I know that Christ is alive and that He's the first fruits." Of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus resurrected to show us that one day we will all be resurrected. 
And then he goes on to address the other kind of controversy. Remember, they were, they were, they believe in that Greco-Roman view of dualism, of the soul being separate from the body. And so they were really struggled with this idea of a resurrection because they said, well, how can we be resurrected when the body has been decayed? If it has been burnt or drowned or it's gone, how can you be resurrected? So then Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life until unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. And he continues, Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a heavenly body. So in other words, Paul says, don't worry about your earthly body. Okay? Yes, your earthly body is going to die. But God is going to give you a heavenly body. Right? A different kind of flesh. One that will not get sick. One that will never die again. One that will hopefully enable us to fly through space. Right? All the things that um, basically Jesus and the angels uh, get to do, that's the kind of body that we will have one day. And then he goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 15. I invite you later to go back and read the whole chapter. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, Paul could endure whippings and beatings and stoning and starvation and everything and ultimately martyrdom because he knew that his work was not in vain. I want to show you this map of how Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. You see, when Paul first started the work, it must have been so daunting for him because when Paul first started the work, there was only one church in the whole world, a Christian church that was in Jerusalem. Right? The very first church was in Jerusalem. There there were, you know, Peter and James and John and the others. And Paul went out there and planted all the churches that, of course, not only him, but others as well. There was Philip and, and, um, John and, um, Zeb, the, the sons of, the other sons of Zebedee and everyone else. They all went out and they spread the, the gospel. And so you can see that Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, fourth and fifth despite the persecutions that happened. Why were they persecuted? Christianity was seen as a very subversive religion because the Roman state was actually very tolerant of religions as long as 
your gods were under the Roman gods. But of course, the Jews and Christians, they didn't believe that there were many gods. They believed in one god and that that god was superior and that the other gods were actually idols and man-made. And so this actually really graded on the Roman uh, leadership because for them it was very important that their empire believed that they are also a god and that they should be uh, uh, respected and worshipped and followed no matter what. The Romans accused Christians of actually being atheists because they didn't have a visible god of stone that they worshipped. So in the Greek writings, it's kind of funny. They call the Christians atheists. And Christians would close their eyes in prayer, right, and pray to an invisible god. And so they said they, be- they don't believe in any god. And in, in the writings of Paul, we see that he goes to areas like Ephesus, and the idol worshippers become really angry at the spread of Christianity, because as you can imagine, they get their money from making the idols from the temple worships. And, and as people became Christian, um, they were losing their source of income. The Christian religion also threatened the social order of the Roman Empire because of declarations like Galatians 3.8.28, where it says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, and you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? They were upsetting the social order of the Roman Empire. And so Christians were imprisoned, tortured, and killed for their belief. So they worshipped in homes where they had to be very careful about how they sang, you know, in whispers. They told stories of Jesus and passed them on secretly. And people would go from house to house, traveling, risking their lives to carry these precious words about Jesus. Sometimes spies would come into these communities. And so that's why Paul warns about, you know, false teachers. Sometimes people would turn after they were tortured. And when the Christians were taken they would then um, be set as examples for the rest of the empire of what happens when you disobey. Many Christians went into hiding. In 1963, a man in Cappadocia, modern-day Turkey, was renovating his home and was knocking down a wall. I don't know if any one of you have ever done renovations in your home, but sometimes you find things you didn't expect. And he he was knocking down a wall, and he noticed that his chickens kept disappearing. He had these chickens it's like, where are these chickens going, right? He just, they just kept disappearing. Then he discovered um, that there was a small hole, and so he made the hole bigger, and when he knocked down the wall, there was a whole cave behind his house, and there was a room. And when he went into that room, there was another room, and another room, and another room. And what he discovered was the Darren Kuyu Underground City, 18 levels of tunnels extending to a depth of 85 meters with rooms, ventilation shafts, food storage, stables, schools, chapels, and wells, and underground river as well. Scholars believe that Daring Kuyu was built thousands of years ago and that various people groups used this underground city, including the early Christians who were escaping persecution, not only during the first three centuries, but also during the Byzantine Empire when the Islamic raids um, were coming to kill and destroy the Christians there. In 2014, another underground city was unearthed beneath the Nevsehir region in Turkey while a hillside was being cleared for redevelopment. A monastery dating back to the 6th century, burial chambers, and an underground church have been uncovered by the ongoing excavations. 
Scholars actually believe that there are hundreds of underground cities in Turkey because there actually used to be a huge Christian population there. It's actually very interesting when you look at the history of Turkey, how it went from being a Christian uh, area to becoming a Muslim area. The, the, the history is fascinating. One of the reasons why that happened is because the Roman Empire became divided in two. Roman Emperor Constantine was in charge of the western portion, and Roman Emperor Licinius, his brother-in-law, was in charge of the eastern portion. Now, in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. So Christianity was persecuted, 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 and in 312, Constantine then gave Christians freedom to worship. Now, his brother Licinius didn't like Constantine, and actually wanted to, to uh, take over all of the Roman Empire. And so he was planning on going to battle against Constantine. Now he knew that if he was going to battle against Constantine, who is now a Christian, if he had any Christian soldiers under his care, there might be a chance that they might mutiny against him and fight you know, for the other side. And so he ordered, by decree, on his side of the empire, that anyone who did not renounce the Christian faith would be sentenced to death. Now, under his command in that area of Turkey, because that's where Licinius ruled, near the town of Sebeste, there was a legion of Christian soldiers. Let me make sure I say the right command. So they were the, hold on. Ah, here we go. Legion 12 Fulminate, the 20 lighting, lightning legion um, in the Sebasti army. There were 40 Christian soldiers in that battalion. And these 40 soldiers refused to deny their faith in Christ. Now, the governor of that area, whose name was Agricola, he said, if you don't surrender, we are going to strip you of all your military rank and you'll be imprisoned. And they said, so be it, we will not renounce our faith in Christ. So the governor imprisoned them, these 40 soldiers. Now, one of the soldiers whose name was Melatius, he wrote down all of their names. And he started a journal of their experience in prison. At night in prison, they would sing and pray together. And at midnight, they heard Jesus say to them, endure to the end and you will be saved. After being in jail for, for several days, the judge, Lucius, arrived, and the 40 soldiers were marched into the interrogation room. And as they marched, they sang, Oh God, save me, and they continued to um, stand together firmly that they would not renounce their faith in Christ. The governor tried flattery. They tried bribery. They said, if you worship uh, and offer sacrifices to the Roman gods, we will give you great glory. We will promote you in our rank. But if you didn't, if, but if you don't do this and you continue your faith in Christ, we're going to execute you. And not just quickly, we're going to throw you into the frozen lake. And it was middle of winter. The 40 soldiers all stood firm and said, we will not deny our faith in Christ. They were then sent back to prison for another week to reconsider. And as they were praying together, Jesus came to them a second time and said, He who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Be brave and fear nothing, and you will obtain imperishable crowns. 
So then the 40 soldiers were sent to die of hypothermia. They were stripped and they were ordered to, to stand in the icy lake. And to make things even more difficult, the Sebaste area were known to have these hot springs. So they drew up water from these hot springs and, and put a little bathtub you know, near the frozen lake to show them as soon as you renounce Christ, you can jump into this hot springs and, and warm up. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate being cold. <laughs> Whenever we go, we go to the Peninsula Hot Springs, Micah will go into the ice plunge like 40 times in a row, and I get cold just looking at him. And um, he's always like, Mommy, come in. I'm like, nope, you're on your own. <laughs> and even on Melbourne Cup Day, it was so hot and lovely. We went to Port Melbourne Beach, and I dipped my toe in, and I was like, no, it is so cold. And I stayed on the sand. And so I cannot imagine how extremely excruciating it would have been for these 40 soldiers in the middle of winter to be in that lake. I actually know a friend, this is a side story, but I actually know a friend who, in, I used to live in Michigan, and if anyone of you have ever been to Michigan, it is freezing cold there, and it's winter, like nine months out of the year, with snow up to here, and I'm not even exaggerating. And I actually had a friend who was on the frozen lake walking, and he fell in. And he was in there for two, over two hours. He actually miraculously survived. A story for another time. But he said, you just, after a while, don't even feel the pain and all you just, you just lose consciousness. Um, so can you imagine these 40 soldiers in the frozen lake with that hot spring steam coming out next to that bathtub where they can see it and the guards are saying, renounce Christ and come in. There was one soldier who couldn't handle the cold anymore. Someone like me, right? And he got out. Sadly, before he could reach the hot bath, he just his body went into shock and he collapsed and died. The 39 remaining soldiers were deeply saddened by this and they started praying more fervently. And all of a sudden, a warm light illuminated the soldiers. And one of the guards saw because some of the guards had fallen asleep because it was the middle of the night, saw this extraordinary light, and he saw 39 radiant crowns descending on the heads of the 39 soldiers. And as the guard saw this, he realized that Jesus Christ indeed is real. And he took off his clothes, and he ran into the lake, and he said, I too want to be a Christian. And he filled the number of the martyrs back to 40. His name was Aglaiasis. And the 40 soldiers in the frozen lake sang, We are 40 soldiers for Christ, until their final breath. And they died on March 9, AD 320. Their frozen bodies were taken out, burnt into ashes, and thrown into the river because the, the governor didn't want anyone to, you know, to have them buried, etc., etc. So they threw their ashes into the river. But because Malesius had written down their testimony, this, and because of the witnesses of the others, this story spread throughout the Christian churches. And we have record of a sermon by Basil the Great, the Bishop of Caesarea, who in 373 AD preached in honor of the Feast of the Forty Martyrs on March 9. And it had already been a feast, so for years they have been celebrating um, this 
extreme sacrifice. And I'll show you a picture of a painting of their martyrdom is still preserved in a fresco from the 8th century in an oratory adjoining the Church of Santa Maria in Rome. So if you ever go to Rome, you can go check it out. There's also the story of Perpetua. Perpetua was a 22-year-old North African noblewoman. She was a wife and a new mother. She had a baby boy. And she was from a Roman family that had been a Roman citizen for generations, so a very wealthy, prominent family. But somehow she heard about Jesus, perhaps from Paul, perhaps from others. And she, um, actually after Paul, she was born after Paul, she decided to get baptized. And she was studying and preparing to get baptized, and her father found out, the others found out, and she was imprisoned in her hometown of Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia. Now, because she was well-educated, she started a journal of her own, and her writings is one of the rare surviving documents written by a woman, an African woman, in the ancient world. And I'll just show you a picture of, this is a manuscript from the 10th century, so obviously not, you know, the original um, but this is a manuscript from the 10th century of what she had um, close to written uh, back in the 2nd to 3rd century. 203 AD is when this happened. So she writes about her decision to get baptized. Her father comes and begs her to recant, right? He's, he's saying, hey, consider me, right, and what you're going to be doing to me. Consider your, your baby boy, and he's going to lose a mother. Please, won't you give up your decision to get baptized. But she is unwavering in her decision. And so she gets baptized, she gets imprisoned, and her baby gets taken away from her. She writes about the extreme pain of not only being separated from her her baby boy, she actually gets mastitis, which every mother knows what that is and how painful and how actually lethal it can be. And so Perpetua is imprisoned, and she writes about the other five Christians who are also imprisoned with her, including a slave woman named Felicity, who is actually pregnant and actually gives birth in prison. And so there, there they are, slave woman, noble woman, side by side, encouraging one another, praying together, singing together, and unflinching in the face of death. She writes about her visions from Jesus, letting her know that all of them would be martyred for their faith. And on the birthday of the Roman Emperor Septimus Severus, on March 7th of AD 203, Perpetua, Felicity, and the others are placed in display in an amphitheater in Carthage. Yep, there it is, where they were gored by wild animals and then killed by the sword. So... Pretty gruesome, violent way to go. And at the end of her journal, a witness of her death added at the end what happened to her, and that then got passed on through the churches. There are currently nine Latin manuscripts and one Greek manuscript of her journal at various libraries and museums around the world, including in Jerusalem. I cannot imagine, right, being Perpetua or Felicity, separated from my babies, and being torn up, having to face, um, the women had to face wild cows, basically, and um, the men had to face bears and leopards. I can't even walk by a tree in the spring because I'm afraid of the magpies. <laughs> and so I can't even imagine these men and women who willingly sacrifice their lives in such a gruesome way, knowing 
that all they had to do to be saved was to say that they would not get baptized into the Christian church. What inspired such incredible courage and conviction? Going back to Paul, who himself was martyred in AD 65 in Rome, he wrote this to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see what drove Paul and Felicity and Perpetua and the 40 soldiers and everyone else in history throughout the world and even now, right? It's because they want to know Jesus, not just you know, a head knowledge, but they want to know him in their hearts. They want to experience him. They want to experience the power of his resurrection in their lives. They believe that any suffering that they go through is worth it because of the resurrection that is to come. Paul concludes his um, letter to the Philippines in this way. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Right? Paul is saying, remember them. Remember me. Remember those who have given their lives. Right? And on Remembrance Day, what a great opportunity to, for us to remember the sacrifices of those who gave their lives so we can be safe. The sacrifices of those who have given their lives so we can have faith. He says in Paul, uh, in Philippians 3:18, for as often I have told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see all those unknown soldiers throughout the world with just that simple marker known by God. They may be uncelebrated and unmourned by us, and not just those who lost their lives in battle. Those women and children and civilians who even now are being taken by violence. Each and every one of them is known unto God. Each and every one of them is precious to God. 
And when Jesus comes back one day with all the angels and with that loud trumpet cry, he's going to call out their names. Perpetua, Felicity, Miletius, Aglaius. He's going to name all the people that he's going to wake up and resurrect to never know pain again. Next week, Tamina is getting baptized. And Attila, who isn't here today, but he's probably watching online, is going to be joining us through a profession of faith. And for those of you who are wondering, what is that? Basically, we believe that you should get baptized by immersion, complete in water. And for those individuals who have already done so, and, and Attila has been baptized um, in a different church by immersion, then we don't make them baptize, get baptized again. We welcome them into our church community through what's called a profession of faith. Whereas Tamina has never been baptized, and so this will be her baptism next week, a time when she's able to show her commitment to God. Now, Tamina and Attila have been through a lot, and I know this because I've spent six months getting to know them, and they're incredible individuals. And despite everything they've been through, if you've ever spent time with them, I'm sorry for embarrassing you, but if you've ever spent time with Tamina and Attila, you know that these individuals are so full of hope so full of joy because they have gotten to know Jesus. And I hope that everyone can come next week to show your support for these two as they join the ranks of Christians who for the past 2,000 years have testified to the world that their lives and their sacrifices are not in vain. We will remember them and God will remember us for we are known unto God. And it is my prayer that we too would join in recommitment next week with them, that we will make Jesus known, that we will know him with all our hearts and minds, and that we will be able to join the cry of all those who Jesus will resurrect one day when we see him again. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stories and the legacies of Christian martyrs in the past who showed that They were willing to suffer and die for you because they knew without a shadow of a doubt that you lived. Father God, we pray for the same conviction today. We pray for courage to be able to stand up for what we believe in. We pray for the faithfulness to prioritize and choose you and to remember that we are citizens of heaven and not here on earth only. We pray for wisdom to know how to engage with the world we live in, to be able to help others know and and have the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life with you. And Father, we pray for all those who might be on the valley of decision as well, or wondering whether you are really alive, whether you do really care about us. And we pray that every single one of us here in this room, those watching, those listening to the podcast later, would receive a vision of you speaking unto us, that each one of us is precious to you, that each one of us is known unto you. And Father God, we pray that you would give us the spirit of unity to come together in mission to help share the hope of the resurrection with those here in Melbourne. As we go into our discussion now and as we continue to, to live out our lives throughout this week, May we live each day being reminded of your great love and sacrifice for us. 
May we live in remembrance of you and in remembrance of all those who have gone before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.